Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, today is April Fool's Day, and Facebook is a joke on April Fool's Day, because basically, well, my April Fool's was today, I was watching the Today Show, and Giada was not showing her cleavage. That was my April Fool's Day for me. But Facebook, everybody puts this stuff like, I'm pregnant, or I'm getting married. We all know you're full of crap. It's not funny. It's like, April Fool's Day is basically, let's be mean to people we love, and then say April Fool's and it's all fine. Like, let's punch an old lady in the face and go, oh, April Fool's. I just, people on Facebook, don't post it. It's not funny. Don't sit there and say, oh, I'm pregnant. Because you know what? What if you don't want to get pregnant? You might get cursed and get pregnant. That's all I'm saying. Which My guest is Stephen Tobolowski. We're going to talk about the pronunciation. We'll talk about it. But yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I I hate uh, April 1st. I had a early lesson in my life uh it was april fool's day and everybody i was in high school and everybody thought it would be funny if we went to this uh high school party and we told everyone that i would be leaving dallas texas to go to israel to sign up for the army to to fight the arabs and to make this joke even funnier one of our friends was a kind of uh pretended to be a psychic uh, card reader all that sort of thing she was going to read my cards and i would get the ace of spades you know the card of death right and so everybody was gathered around and and we all i was in on the joke a couple friends were in on the joke everyone thought it was exciting and then i got the ace of spades and one girl who was not in on the joke began screaming and crying and she came up to me and grabbed me said said Stephen please don't go I love you please don't go you can't go I can't lose you please don't go and then I'm stuck with telling her it was a joke it's April Fool's Day it's a joke and she I every bit of affection she had for me turned to deep hatred well, yeah it, it's it's such a i mean it's like whoever came up with it it's first of all if you if you get f- fooled on april fools you're pretty much an idiot like i don't believe if someone says i'm getting married i'm yeah. getting you no know, you aren't and, and they put it on facebook like they think they're fooling someone like and they think it's like the most creative thing they've ever done like especially when it's creative people you know going hey uh i'm four months really that's all you can come up with you're pregnant like I, the female comics oh i'm good or the fake uh picture of the uh uh, ultrasound it's like it's like you know don't even don't even go there but i think i think also it could be a function of age because i think at certain times in your life you pay attention to when it's april 1st and when it's april 15th and when it's it's like saint patrick's day and you wear green it, and at other points in your life like at the age i'm at in my life i just every day is like today and Every other day is like tomorrow, and the days we write about are yesterday, and we just don't care. So I would have forgotten it was April Fool's Day until you just reminded me. It was all over. It's like, that's just so funny. We're talking about on Facebook. (laughs) It's like the... uh, the earthquake, and my girlfriend just moved out here from New Jersey. I was going back and forth for a while, and so she, she felt the earthquake. But then we had the earthquake last week, and as soon as you get an earthquake, Facebook pops up. Well, I, I tweet funny stuff about. It. I go, you know, oh, you know, my girlfriend wants to get an emergency kit, and I'm like, you know, well, I said, screw it. We live down the street from a convenience store. We'll just loot, you know, just because <laughs> I'm sitting there going, we, you know, 
But then people are like, oh my God. You know, and it's always, and, and you've lived out here for a while. It's always like news shows these chandeliers. That's like they have like this stock footage, I think, of chandeliers shaking. Yeah. And you look, because I know, I talked about this last week. I don't, I can't take my phone. By the time I get my phone out and get the camera on and get it on video, the chandelier shop's shaking. Yeah, and and if it's really a serious, I mean, I was around for the serious earthquake okay. and the Northridge quake. That's when fire was coming out of the earth around where I was because gas lines broke. We had a, a we had one tiny child, uh, eighteen days old, and we had another child that was young, four years old. There was a twenty foot hallway that connected our bedroom to my four year old child's room. He was screaming with the earthquake, and it was like a nightmare. When I I got up, I said, "I will get you, honey. I will get you. Stay there." And I got up, and you could not walk. Because you, you, you get this instant awareness that the only reason we are able to walk is because the earth stays right. in one place. That when the earth moves, you cannot walk. And the, the floor was undulating, like in some sort of science fiction movie. And I could not get them. And I said, honey, I'll get you as soon as I can. I'll get you as soon as I can. No time for iPhones. So if anybody's taking a picture of an iPhone... April Fool's Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when that earthquake, it's funny because uh, Fritz Kalman said he like he like his pool like it like caused waves like like water came in and you don't think of you know I grew up back east yeah we know the ocean the high tide the low tide but you don't think of a, of, of a, and if it rains you might overflow but in California we don't get enough rain that your pool is going to flood but when you have like waves coming into your house you know it's a pretty damn it's, big earthquake. It's serious earthquake. I, I there was one time. I mean I don't want to tell stories of myself. There was one time when actually. Uh, many years ago, I was in in uh, in flagrante. Is that what you say? With my wife, we were in bed okay. at six in the morning, and you want to use the obvious line: "Did the Earth move?" But the Earth was moving. <laughs> I mean, the Earth was moving, and we went from uh, ecstasy to sudden terror in like zero point zero zero. It's scary, and yeah. it's a point where you just like these these two last ones. I felt like usually I don't, but you sit there and you just. There's nothing you can do. You just sit there and yeah. it's like, okay. And I told my girlfriend, I said, it'll stop. Because the first one that was beautiful was at six in the morning and she had just come from back east. So she was had woken up and I was like, and I was in that, that state where you're like half asleep. You're like sort of in a dream and, and you wake up and you're like, you're, then you want to get back into the dream. And so when it started shaking, it, it scared the hell out of me. Now, let me ask you this. Have, do you in any way, shape or form feel that anything you do personally contributes to the fact that there's an earthquake. Me? Well, yeah, like the fact that, quote, you don't have an earthquake kit helps promote the fact that there's going to be an earthquake. I mean, my wife is in that camp. She says, I need to finish our earthquake kit or we will have an earthquake. Okay. No, you know, I'm, there's a causal link there. Your wife is very much like my girlfriend. She's, okay. she's thinking, you know, because I was like, I've lived here for 13 years. What earthquake quit? I, I said, as I said, I live in Burbank. There's, a, and, my, and that wasn't a joke. There's a, a, a Rafi's <laughs> market right down the street. Street, I'll just go in and take water. And I'm going to say, it's Burbank. Um, if I go into an Armenian market, I'm not getting arrested because I'm a white guy in Burbank. <laughs> I'll just take the water. I mean, what? I mean, I think what I said, I go, what is going to happen? I mean, we feel more because we live on the second floor and then we have a uh, two levels. So our bedroom's upstairs. So you feel it as the higher. But it's like, for me, it's like, Okay, she had, she put a flashlight in the sock drawer, like right next to the bed, and I'm like, okay, I'm like Joanne, we walk around it's dark. You have a phone. I mean, I hate to say it, but a phone works as a light. And I just, for me, I I could give a crap. I don't think I don't think anything's gonna 
happen if my building falls i die i don't need an earthquake kid i'm not i'm not gonna starve it's not like we're in, in third world countries where it's like the earth you but we can't get water it's like when you travel i used to get freak out when i then luckily i went back and forth a lot the, the last year and a half so i got used to flying but i would freak out like did i not pack anything then it's so stupid because it's like we're near a mall like if i forgot socks <laughs> i can go buy socks but people get like oh my god i forgot well you're going to uh, uh, 10 minutes outside philadelphia the suburbs you know we have stuff do you uh, you travel a lot right i travel a lot it's 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 but it, it could be a nightmare i mean it could be an, i i kind of do the other thing i look for the nightmare on the other side of the closet door. Whenever I travel to a place, I go to a drugstore nearby and look what they have in quantity to see what indicates what's horrible where I'm going. Okay. So like when I went to the Bahamas, I went there and they had all this fever blister medicine at the casino where we were staying. I thought, fever blister, what's the big deal with it? Next day, fever blister. Uh, go to <laughs> Brazil, go into the uh, drugstore. All of these uh, bottles with... Uh, women with pitchforks killing worms, like anti-worm medicine. You go like, okay, we're not going to eat nothing. There's right. worms in it, man. Yeah. No pork. <laughs> no, no pork nothing. at all. We got worms here. So I And I do that at the golf store, too. I go and I take a look at what all the returned clubs are. And I see what model they are, and I think, okay, these are the ones that suck. Okay, well, these are the sense. ones that people can't use. Okay, <laughs> so what is the name? Okay, 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 because I it's it's spelled like it's like it's spelled like it could be Tobolowski, but there's no U. Yeah. But then it's then it could be a Tobolowski, or it could be a. It's like for me, I mean, I my name's Cooper. You can't screw. No, I, I was at a wedding once, and a guy introduced me as an opponent as Steve Copper, and I reamed him out. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I said, on. I said, you is this California school systems? copper i'm like how do you get that and that but with your name it's it's funny is it's easier to spell than it is to pronounce right right now i'm going to give you the story i heard and then i'm going to give you the newest edition of the story the revised that people don't know (laughs) okay so the old story was i had no idea how to pronounce the name because we went to my uh, everyone in our family pronounces it differently they say tabalowski tablowski tabalowski I say Tabalowski. Everybody pronounces it differently. I went to Uncle Nathan, who was do that the, again. The way he said it, Tabal. No, there used to be a comic in Philadelphia named Ben Carlin who'd be oh, like Tabalowski. Tabalowski. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, um, and and I went to Uncle Nathan, who was the family historian, and he said, "Well, Stephen, you can pronounce your name any way you want to because it's not your name." <laughs> So I'm going like, what? He says, yes, when grandfather came into Ellis Island, he didn't speak of the good English, and they asked him, who are you? Grandfather thought who is like either the German wo or the Yiddish wo, and which means where. And so grandfather thought instead of saying, who are you? He was saying, where are you from? So grandfather answered, Abram from Tobolsk. So I got my name. Stephen Tobolowsky, the same way Don Corleone got his name in The Godfather. So that was the story until this last summer. And my brother's son was working pro bono in a lawyer's office. And he found uh, an advertisement in the paper from like 1870 in Plano, Texas. The Tobolowsky brothers. Uh, This predates when my grandfather 
came to America. So there were Tobolowskis already in Dallas, already in Plano, before Grandpa came. So the idea of him getting the name Tobolowski from some misunderstanding was bogus. So I still have no idea. Okay. Well, but, I, but I say Tobolowski. Okay, well, that's okay. It's, it's, how come you never, did you ever think of changing your name? I did. I had, uh, when I first came out to L.A., the first agent I met, her name was Carol Farrell. And I liked her because the name rhymed. And she said that she cannot sell me as Stephen Tobolowski. And I said, well, who could you sell me as? And she said, well, like Steve Adams. If your name was Steve Adams, I could sell you. I said, okay, I'll tell you what. Why don't you tell people you're representing an actor named Steve Adams? And if anybody hires me, I'll change my name to Steve Adams. And I had a few resumes made up with the name Steve Adams on it, which now I could sell on eBay for thousands. Yeah. And I ended up uh, with Tobolowski, and I found out one of the big advantages of keeping a name for all you young actors out there with long, unpronounceable names. When you do get a part, it goes all the way across the screen. It goes, so you have all these people with the short names, with the short names, and then you have Stephen Tobolowski goes across, and yours is the only name that stands out. That's, that's smart. So I would recommend keep the long name. Well, I'm glad you kept it. Thank you. Because Steve Andrews, Steve Andrews, <laughs> Steve Andrews just sounds like a cheesy lounge singer. Like, <laughs> hey, I'm Steve Andrews. Come to the, you know, the uh, Beef and Bowl and listen to me sing the Hits of Sinatra. Yeah, come on. Come on. <laughs> so you're from Texas. Now, yeah. now, as a kid, did you ever think you'd go into acting? And what was your, I'm not as, like, I always say, like, as a kid, like, you're six, like, you know your aspirations. But as a kid, did you get into theater? Did you get into comedy? As a writing? kid, when I was six, I had aspirations. <laughs> I had aspirations to be an actor. And... The reason was because I loved monsters and I loved monster movies and I thought they were real. And I thought if you were an actor, you got to hang out oh. with Godzilla. <laughs> you got to sit there and smoke cigarettes with the Wolfman or Frankenstein, that they were all real people. So I thought this was a way of of meeting the real folk. And I, as a kid, I did plays. I, I did plays during the summer. I did plays in my junior high and high school. And then I went into college and I SMU, was... SMU, right? Yes, yeah, SMU. I was a theater major. And then it wasn't to meet monsters anymore. Then I thought acting was noble. But I think I was just being touched by the beauty of Shakespeare, Shaw, Chekhov. And I thought, I want to be closer to this. Little did I know that I would become a professional actor at that time, essaying roles like butt crack plumber, <laughs> plumber, plumber number one, bald plumber, uh, any number of roles like that. You'd, in fact, I think, I think I have never been paid to do Shakespeare. I, I don't think since college I ever did Shakespeare. At, at the Mark Taper Forum out here, I did a reading of Hamlet, and they asked me to do Polonius. They pay me a couple hundred dollars for the week to rehearse and to do the reading. So, yes, that's the only time that's I crazy. have done Shakespeare. So you, get, you graduate TCU. SMU. SMU, I'm sorry, SMU. Uh, that's the Horn Frogs, man. Oh, yeah, when sorry, you you're, say 2CU, that's Horn no, Frogs. I, okay, because you know, I, I was thinking there was a great uh, 30 on 30, but I think it was about TCU, about Could be. Pony Horn, Express. Horn Frog. Well, no, but the Pony looks, Express was SMU. That, did you see that? No, but that's a Mustang. It's, that's, a, great, it's a great documentary. It's about how when- uh, We were murdered. Dickerson, no, all those guys. Eric Dickerson. That this, they, but they, they were just- Giving shit to like just paying kids and <laughs> just like the players on the payroll and it was such it was Dickerson and uh, James were the backfield. Yeah, a great documentary. It's a two hour. You should check it out. I love the thirty thirty documentaries. Love, love them. I love them. You're a big sports them. fan. 
I, I'm a big sports fan, but I, I, whenever I can watch those 30-30 things, I think they're really lean and mean and to the they're point. Great. So you, you graduate yep. with your acting degree. Yep. And so do you kick around to Texas for a while, or do you say, i got to come to L.A.? I was in Dallas. I actually got my uh, equity card in Dallas and performed at Theater 3. I got my SAG after card in Dallas. For, for what? I, I did uh, Keep My Grave Open was the name of the SAG after a movie. And you, you want to know how much I paid for my SAG after card? How much? This will date you. It's like carbon dating for actors. $120. Well, what is it now? I think 3000 bucks you just know, for the SAG card. That's, just, that's what amazes me. It's like, okay, now you can, you can, you're a starving actor and you got, you got your, a lot of these guys get their vouchers doing extra work because you're starving, you know, you're not working. So now as an extra, no, true, if you're, if you're extra with uh, SAG, you get like, it's like 340 for eight hours. Okay. It's, it's you know, compared to 17 cents for <laughs> 12 hours. <laughs> And so you sit there and then they go, okay. And what always bothered me was, it's like, okay, well, here's my $3,000. What do I get? Do I get insurance? Oh, no, no, no. You have to book stuff to get insurance. Well, what, you, you just get to get this. And I think a lot of times it's just, it must, it's 3000 is a lot. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not sag. I'm, I may know. have that figure wrong, by the way. But, but, but it's but like in that, Yeah, it's, but it's 100. High. I mean, it's just but amazing to think that, you know, bread hasn't inflated that much in the time. You know, I mean, it's like that's a big jump from 100 to 3000 Yeah, it, it's huge. And, and of course, when, when you come out to Los Angeles, what, what you deal with is all of the no's. People find ways to say no to you. So when you come out, they, the first thing they say are, are you in SAG? Uh, no. Well, okay, thank you. When you get in SAG, come on back and see me. Or they say, do you have an agent? Uh, are you in equity? All sorts of questions to where you could say no. And if you say yes, if you get yeses on all of them, they'll say, well, we already have someone your type. So come back later. When there are mil- what I always feel is when I came out to Los Angeles, there are millions of gatekeepers, but very few gates. Right. And, and the people who can't do anything else become gatekeepers. And they start lording over you, no, 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 no. The most uh, precarious position in this town, and they will tell you this is true, it's no, no secret, is the casting director. And these are the people that, as actors, we seek their approval we audition for we hope to get work from but their jobs are equally as tenuous as ours they're in the they get it from both ends so it's it's vicious out here it's 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 a form of evolution speeded up to where uh you're quickly turned into coal but you came out here with your side card. I came out here with everything, man. I had Were you I afraid? had a resume. I had a resume of theater credits. Steve I Andrews. No, no, <laughs> that came later. <laughs> I, I I had summer stock. I I had all the shows I did in college. I remember I met with one good agent out here and gave him my resume, and he says, "Let's see, you got Glass Menagerie. You got hmm, yeah, you got uh, Man's a Man. Uh, you you got Bertolt Brecht." Uh, none of this means anything. I said, what do you mean none of this means anything? These are all my right. theater credits. He says, theater's crap, man. Theater's crap. I, I, I said, well, why did I spend all of my time working on getting these theater credits? He says, search me, because this is nothing out here. This is nothing. And, and it was, again, another way of saying no. And you find one thing Harold Ramis told me, and it's absolutely true, is that becoming a professional actor is impossible. 
that the the only, it's like the bumblebee cannot fly. Uh, everyone who has made it has had at least four heroes in their life. You don't know where they come from. You don't ask for them, but somehow they show up and they open a door for you or give you a helping hand. Now, of course, Harold Ramis was one for me. He was one of my four heroes. But when you come out here, it's almost impossible to get ahead uh, unless unless you are a star already, and then you don't need to come out here. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. If you're a star already, yeah. you can live wherever you, could you want. Live, like, you can live in Idaho. Harold Ramis lived in Chicago, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, okay, y'all yeah. come out. You know. yeah. so, so you move out here. Had you been to L.A. before? Uh, uh, I think only when my parents, with my parents, to come to go to Disneyland. Did you pack the car and drive? Oh, did we pack? The, I came out with my mom, and we packed up the Oldsmobile. Mom wanted to drive out with me. This car was like the Guinness Book of World Records in terms of being, it was so packed that whoever drove had to have the basket of laundry on their lap, under their chin, filled with laundry. It was filled to the roof, and then when you had to make a rest stop, you had to unpack parts of the car, switch places. Uh, I got to... Uh, I found a little apartment, and my mom was taking the plane back to Dallas, and her parting words to me were, sweetheart, whatever you do, don't go into porno. <laughs> That's such like a Midwest mom, you know, like it's like it's so classic. And of course, I ended up on Californication. Oh, what would she have thought of? Oh. What's your grade in? Uh, um, but, no, I'm looking at your resume, the early stuff. So you were just getting different. I mean, it's it's like great. It's like you know, you were on Alice. You were yes. part Alice. I mean, it's such. And it's just, I'm a I'm a, I love the old TV. Like I, you know, I get I get mad when I can't. You can't find a show like Alice. You can't. You can't find Barney Miller, which is to right. me was such a good show. Great you show. There and you're like, wait, wait, you know, oh, I can see, you know, House of Pain 87 times a day, but I can't <laughs> find Barney Miller. You know, and nothing against House of Pain. I don't watch it. In fact, there's this lady at the gym, this older African American lady, and I love being on the treadmill next to her because she finds the House of Pain, and she, I don't even know how she gets exercising done because she's just laughing so hard and i'm like you're having a little too much fun it's the gym okay calm down <laughs> so so you're doing all these now are you, are you getting a lot of auditions when you get out here no no i i ended up doing what i knew how to do which was theater uh we did oh here's another one of those heroes uh i i gathered together with a bunch of other friends some from texas some friends of friends from texas and we started a theater company theater theater and we, we did plays out here, and one of those casting directors who cared about theater was Fran Bascom. And Fran Bascom, bless her heart, would come to see all of the plays, and sure enough, out of nowhere, we would get a call, hello, this is Fran Bascom, uh, I happened to see your show the other night, uh, would you please come in and read for thus and so? And you ended up having done theater, because a casting director took the extra, walked the extra mile, you ended up getting auditions, and I ended up getting a few of the small jobs, either on Alice or, and, and even that was a fluke. How did I get the role of Alice? I got the role of Alice, I think, because the guy who played it before me got fired. Okay. And the casting director said, we're doing this in two days. Can you come in? And, and I auditioned. I went in to rehearse that day, my two, three scenes. Next day, I was shooting it. I love your name on IMDb, Carl Caveman Carl. Caveman Carl. That's just that's like so funny. And you're right when you said that ass crack. And like when you see some of the names of like people in their earlier career, and you go, okay, it's like my last guest was like, it was uh, it says uncredited, and he goes, I was an extra. I don't even know why it's on there. <laughs> he goes, my first role, I sat next to a piano and 
I've called them. They don't take a part down. And they, that's the, I think when it says uncredited, it means you're next to her. Now, now let, let me try to date you in history. Why do you think they named the part Caveman Carl? Knowing how television tries to glom onto popular culture, who were they trying to copy? Um, Wolfman Jack. Okay, all right. Okay, that now, makes sense. And, and now Wolfman Jack is but a memory. Yeah. I mean, if I were to say Wolfman Jack, probably 99% of your audience would not know who I'm talking about. But, I, yeah, you know, he is the guy. Oh, it's the Wolfman. Yeah. Well, see, yeah, and that was, he was, I remember he was a Midnight Special and stuff. Midnight and we special. all knew that. I mean, because I'm 50. I just turned 50 in October, at the end of October. And, you know, we remembered all that stuff. Yeah. And it's so funny. It's like, you know, because when I do comedy still now, you, you talk to younger people, and I love working with older comics because I'll, I'll do like I do random stupid impressions. You know, like Marlon Brando as a tuna fish, or just stuff that they they, they when I say well, no front, I do a Jerry Lewis bit, which always does well. But I did it in front of, like there was like a bunch of young kids the other night. They do they don't get it because I do Jerry Lewis singing Jimi Hendrix. I go Foxy Lady. I just you know, I do that, and they, they they don't get it, and they don't even know who Jimi Hendrix is. I mean, that's what's crazy. You know, there was uh, the great funny man. Uh, Sigmund Freud did a series of lectures in 1905 in Munich on comedy, of all things. And it became known as Jokes and Their Relationship to the Unconscious. And in that, Sigmund Freud warned against using current topical references in comedy. He said, because those references vanish quickly. They are, in, if you do comedy and use topical references, goodbye, Madonna. I mean, a few years ago, that would be hot. Now it's like, uh, borderline. Right. And Hey, there you go. A little Madonna, borderline. Yeah, Boom. There, now there you are. Yeah, you're like a virgin. Like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, and, and Marlon Brando? Come on. He's only been dead now, what, 10 years? Oh, yeah. I, just, I know. I just, and, it's, it's, and who sees on the waterfront now? Such and he point. was so iconic. We, ju- we just don't know these things anymore. So you're working away, and I'm looking at yeah. it. You have, you have so much stuff. I mean, you have a lot of great parts you know you're in, you're in a bunch of stuff you're in a bunch of tv now what would you say was when your part that broke you not broke you but it started you getting more work was it groundhog's day because you were working a lot before groundhog's day. i was you- working a lot before groundhog day but groundhog day kicked it into a whole new category and one uh, i i have a a kind of formula that you have to be good in a good movie that people see if any one of those three things is not there, if you're good in a good movie that no one sees, you're a trivia question. Have you question. been good in a good movie that no one's seen, that you can think of? I, th- I think uh, I was good in a really good movie that maybe no one saw. Bossa Nova maybe was not like a movie that was, it was a Brazilian film. It was not like a big box office film, but it was terrific. Okay. And I was good. Everybody was good in it. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie if you don't know what to see. And you, you, you take a look at Bruno Barreto's Bossa Nova. It's a wonderful movie. But, uh, or if you're uh, bad in a good movie that everybody sees, it's the end of your career. So you have to be good in a good movie that everybody sees. And that happened to be lucky for me that it was Groundhog Day. And it's funny because back then, the, you know, the Bill Murray comedies were so giant. Like, you, yes. know, you sit there, I mean, as you know, for me, it's like, you know, the John Hughes and the you know the the Ramus movies and just they were so big I think because there wasn't so many choices and when you went you know if you went you went to see a Bill Murray movie you knew you were going to laugh and 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 it was good and bad because there was a certain amount of expectation 
that as a viewer we went to a Bill Murray. Bill Bill was kind of a wild guy. He was a rebel. He he was uncouth. He was all these sort of things. And in a way, to take a film that became a kind of spiritual giant of a film like Groundhog Day and to center it around Bill Murray and what his character was. It's amazing to take a look at the evolution of the scripts of Groundhog Day because they did not... Some of the early scripts I saw were typical Bill Murray movies where Bill got to do all these outlandish, crazy Bill Murray things. And eventually those things left the script and we ended up with Bill basically being a jerk at the movie at the beginning of the movie, and he becomes a mensch kind of at the end. I, I remember I had one realization this year about Groundhog Day, since people love that movie. The reason why everybody loves the character of Ned, and but Ned is important in the, in the movie in a different way. Before Bill's character meets Ned, Bill is the antagonist of the film. After he meets Ned on the street, Bill becomes the protagonist. And it switches the entire way we view the movie. So next time you watch the movie, see how Bill has no sympathy from us before Ned and afterwards we're rooting for him. That's interesting, I guess, because you, you, you were in that. So that's just cool to hear it from you. So now it's I'll flip their energy. Just take a look at it. Yeah. I, and I watched and I went like, that's what makes this Ned character such a fulcrum in the movie because Ned is such an asshole. You know, that afterwards, Bill becomes like our hero. Right. Now, how did you come about getting that role? Because you were working in a lot of uh, stuff, yeah, yeah, but yeah. how did that happen? Well, it was it was not a pleasant story. It's not a pleasant story. Uh, I was doing another movie at the time called Calendar Girl, and I was working with a really terrific actor, Kurt Fuller. And we were... From Psych. Yeah, absolutely. So we were brothers in that film, and Kurt was my deaf-mute brother, and I had to learn sign language of the deaf to translate all the scenes for him, and, and he had to learn consequently. We were shooting in Paris, California, and the producers, to save money, put Kurt and I in the same bedroom. <laughs> never, never before. Not in the same bed. We had, to, we had a <laughs> queen's queen bed. But it was still weird uh, sharing a room with another actor. And I got called in to read for Harold Ramis for Groundhog Day. And I went in and I read, I loved the character of Ned, came back out. And that night when Kurt and I were lying down, it was kind of like summer camp. And we're at YMCA summer camp. And Kurt asked me, so what do you got going next? And I know deep inside, if there are any actors out there, whenever an actor asks you what you're doing next and you're an actor, they don't really want to hear that you're doing anything next. The only thing that can make another actor happy is if you say that you're leaving the business and opening a sandwich <laughs> shop. So I, I said, I didn't say anything about the audition that day. I just said nothing really. And I said, well, Kurt, what are you up to? And he said, well, actually... I'm doing a new Bill Murray movie, uh, Groundhog Day. I'm playing this crazy insurance salesman, Ned Ryerson. Uh, Harold Ramis is a friend of mine. And we had a read-through with the cast like a month ago, and we start shooting it in just like two, three weeks. And I'm thinking like, oh, dear. This is going to be a bad story. No matter how it works out, it's either going to be bad for Kurt or, or going to be bad for me. There's some politics going on here that I'm not privy to. I get the word that I have a call back. I go back, I get the call, go in, audition for Harold Ramis. 
on the way back to Paris, California, to do the other movie, I get the phone call that I got the part. By the time I get to Paris, California, Kurt has found out. That you got the part or he is no longer? Oh, God. Oh, God. So, oh, God. That's what I said. It's a terrible story. So, Kurt is furious. Kurt is hurt. Kurt has been betrayed any number of ways, and I don't know the backstory of how that happened. All I know is this. The end of the story is that the premiere of Groundhog Day, Kurt, was waiting in front of the theater. And he walked in and watched the movie, uh, uh, that very first premiere. And afterwards, he came up and he hugged me. And he said, well, buddy, you got my part, but at least you did a good job. Congratulations. And he shook my hand and walked away. And I tried to resolve from that point on in a business that has very little courage or class to try to have the courage and class of Kurt Fuller. Right. Now, since then, we've worked several times again together, but uh, an event like that has to leave a mark on him and leave a mark on me. But that's what this business does. Yeah, it's so weird, you know. And then you hear just, you know, I had a guest on last week, the girl from Episodes, uh, Kathleen Rose Perkins. And she was, you know, she was on the table read for... um, rules of engagement and then they just got rid of three of the class cast and she was one of them and you don't know it's like it comes out of nowhere and because you think oh i'm on the series but it's just like that and you and the actors are last to know and they hardly ever know what happened right right and 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 probably you don't want to know and it's and it's probably all stupid but there are a million ways this this business is like the death of a thousand cuts so there are a million ways it can hurt you. So what you have to do is to resign yourself to take a look at the positive or it will eat you alive. So after you do Groundhog's Day, yep. there's a break. So people are probably recognizing you now just because, you know, they're probably like, oh, right. that, there's that jerk. And they probably think you're a jerk in real life. I've heard people get that a lot. Like if you play a jerk in a movie, unfortunately, the public doesn't understand that you aren't a jerk in real life did you get anyone thinking that you were like a jerk and that people run into you no but but i got you know i no i didn't get people people generally love ned and everywhere i went people loved the character of ned and didn't think of ned as a serious jerk but just as a kind of fun clown kind of character but there is a kind of food chain in in this business you you have movies kind of at the top and then you have TV underneath that. You probably have theater somewhere at the bottom. And so after I did Groundhog Day, I had a lot of TV producers, a lot of TV people wanted to cast me as a regular in series because of Groundhog Day. It gave me a cachet of saying, we have Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day in our TV show. So I did several regular stints on sitcoms you after that in mr rhodes in mr Was rhodes tom, a, tom rhodes is a uh, past guest of the show oh i love tommy he's not, is he a texas guy too no 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 no, no. i don't think so but he's florida i yep he's someplace where they have crazy people right so it's got to be florida, <laughs> florida. it's got to be montana someplace <laughs> like that i just saw his show out at uh you know the improv okay gosh funny yeah so good that was that was an example, uh, Mr. Rhodes. But you realize as an actor, you are working your way down the food chain again. And what you have to do is, the only it's very difficult to be in television and work your way up into doing film again. But you have to keep changing venue, especially if you're a character actor. You can't get stuck in any one place because you will get pigeonholed and your work will vanish. It will dry up. So 
eventually you have to come down and do theater again to get revitalized. And so I did all sorts of, and I was lucky because I think the real big break in my career was before Groundhog Day was when Alan Parker cast me in Mississippi Burning. That was the big break. Even though I was playing, you know, the head of the Ku Klux Klan, nobody knew what Mississippi Burning was, but they knew Alan Parker was doing it, and that had cachet. So I got cast in four other movies while I was doing Mississippi Burning because they said, well, we don't know what part this guy's playing, but he's in an Alan Parker movie. So I ended up doing, like, Breaking breaking In, uh, Bird on a Wire. Did something happen to you in Bird on a Wire? Did you get, like, killed or something more weird because <laughs> no, I, I posted you're going to be on, on my show and I, I forget the movie I saw it but I posted you're going to be on a show and my friend John Kensel he's a comic from Philly he's like oh ask him about something happens yeah. and I what, what was it what was it yeah well see I played a, a, a computer guy on the a CIA guy white collar criminal and in in all these action films there are hierarchies of deaths and the worst bad guy gets the most elaborate exotic death. So I always mention, you know, John Travolta in Broken Arrow was so bad that he had to get hit in the stomach with a nuclear bomb. That's how bad he was. So in this one, David Carradine was a bad guy. Uh, Bill Duke was a bad guy. They were the main heavy bad guys in it. Well, Bill Duke was supposed to get eaten by piranhas. And... Uh, he said he couldn't swim. So Rob Cohen, who was producing Bird on a Wire, came to me and said, Stephen, have a walk with me, will you? So we started walking. He says, how would you like to switch deaths with Bill Duke? What was your original death? Uh, my original death is I was supposed to be eaten by a jaguar okay. at the zoo. <laughs> and uh, I said, what, you mean switch deaths with Bill Duke? I mean, for me, this was a promotion. <laughs> this was amazing because it meant I would have to have a fist fight with Bill Murray. Now, you have to understand, they didn't, ch- I mean, with uh, Mel Gibson, you have to understand that I was a white-collar criminal. Right. <laughs> right. I wasn't the tough guy. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like the computer guy, and I have a fist fight with Mel Gibson. And I, so they didn't rewrite the rest of the part. They just had some kind of chalky, white, tubby, guy have this fight with mel gibson and i get kicked into a tank of piranhas and get eaten by piranhas so uh just like you have buyer's remorse um i started having actor's remorse after i (laughs) said i would switch deaths with bill duke uh, especially when rob came up to me and said stephen now i don't want you to worry about the piranhas because we have flown in vegetarian piranhas from the amazon (laughs) And I'm thinking like, okay, I'm an actor. I know, but I'm not that stupid. Right. There's no such thing as vegetarian piranhas. <laughs> so this was the deal. I'm in a tank of water. They put on prosthetics on my face and my hands for the piranhas to swim up and mechanical piranhas to tear off pieces of my flesh. But at the same time, they had the real piranhas in the water as well that would swim in front of the camera. I'm in a tank of water, and they load my pockets with about 35 pounds of lead weight. So I would sink to the bottom of the tank and then stay at the bottom as long as I can and scream while the piranhas swim in front and the fake piranhas uh, tear off my face. 
And they said, now, if you feel like you're about to die at any point, like drowned or anything, just do a sign, just do a sign, and we'll have skin divers go in and save you. So it took five hours to get into prosthetic makeup. Uh, bottom of the tank for as long as I could be down there, which is about 50 seconds. Right. Then two hours to take off the prosthetics for take two, five hours into the makeup, 50 seconds shooting the scene, two hours taking it off. And so I had been shooting about 14 hours straight. And while the prosthetics are on and everything, you cannot uh, pull your willy out of your pants to go pee. Yeah. And you're in water. That's so, even worse. Well, I could have, if yeah, I had thought about it, I could have peed in the tank. But I'm in there with the piranhas. Right. And you can't eat because you have the stuff all over your face and your hands. So 14 hours straight, no eating, no peeing. And then Rob said, can we shoot one more take? So we shot 21 straight hours in Canada, and I thought, man, I am going to get so much overtime for this. I'm going to make thousands on this. But I did not know that I had been negotiated to Schedule F, which for you out there... (laughs) F stands for something else, too, and it means you have been screwed, and uh, it means you get all of your overtime for free. You've donated oh, your wow. overtime, so I got nothing extra, oh, God. but I did have a great memory of being in, in the tank with the vegetarian piranhas. That's great. It's just only Hollywood come up. Oh, vegetarian. They're vegetarian. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 no we, we know. We know. We, we, put, we put plants and meat in front of them, and they went for the plants. Yeah, always. So, okay. so as I look through your career... Um, was, oh, you were Seinfeld. Now, what was that like? Because Seinfeld was, that was such a great role. And, yeah. um, and it's so funny because Seinfeld was so big. I think this, yours was in the second season, though. I first? Believe. First. So now, though, it's more watched now because back then a lot of people weren't watching the no, first, first season. No, first season. I watched it because I did stand-up, but a lot of people weren't. Now, as my guest earlier, Tim, was on, he had played uh, the, the, the um, store manager of the, uh, the store that George's fiance owned. And, uh-huh. and, but... You know, but now it's Seinfeld's on all the time. Like it's on TBS and here. What was that like shooting then? Did you did you think the show was going to become this huge phenom? Oh no! Well, you didn't know it was big, but I was a big fan of Jerry Seinfeld from from stand up. I mean, I didn't do stand up, but I was a fan of stand up, and I was a fan of Jerry Seinfeld. So I thought, well, I know who this guy is. This guy's hilarious. I saw him perform in Dallas. So it just so happened these stories intersect, and you didn't even know it. It's a psychic power you have. That's me. So I'm doing Calendar Girl, right? And what part am I playing? I am playing the part of somebody with a deaf, mute brother, Kurt Fuller. So uh, Columbia... Screen Gems, Sony, whatever it was called back then, was giving me lessons in sign language for the deaf so I could do Calendar Girl uh, and do the sign language of the deaf signs. So I get a call from Mark Hirschfeld, who was the casting director of Seinfeld. He said, Stephen, we're doing this faith healer kind of part, this psychic healer. Could you come in and see if you can make this funny? So I came in and I met with Jerry and I met with Mark and I said, well, what if... Everything I did had hand signs from the sign language of the deaf classes I was doing, plus making up signs of my own. Right. What if I did everything with these hand signs, and I did the part for Jerry? And he goes, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, you can do that, yeah. So I ended up getting the part, and uh, I had no idea who knew right. that Seinfeld was going to be what it was. Certainly NBC did not know 
who gave Jerry and all those people all those points in the show. They thought it was like going to be nowhere. Right, right. That's crazy. Well, you and that you're also on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, with Larry. Now, yeah. is that did I remember you? Is that how it happened? Yeah, or? Larry. Larry David uh, remembered me from Seinfeld, and uh, Larry Charles as well. Yeah, he worked on the Seinfeld as well, so they knew it. And uh, it's so funny because now, I how Groundhog Day has become a bit of popular culture that we say it's Groundhog Day when it's a repeated event. Right. And, of course, that has nothing to do with what Groundhog Day is. Now I have the Larry David moment I, where you get caught in a Larry David moment where somehow you are to blame for something right. that is not your fault. I was on a Southwest uh, Airlines flight somewhere, and a stewardess is walking down the aisle, and she passed me. Then she turns around and says, did you just hit me? I said, no, no, you hit me. I think you just hit my bottom. I said, no, ma'am, no, that that wasn't, I didn't do it. So she's like giving me the the look, the Larry David look, the look, the look. She goes back, starts talking to the other stewardesses. They are looking at me. Okay. So this is, now this has become the Larry David moment of when you are to blame for some of society's ills. You, you are paying the price for them. But that was a ton of fun. I never. That was terrifying. Why were you terrified? Because I mean, well, you have there's such no a, script. Okay, but you have such a background. You know, you've acted in drama, comedy, this, that, series, movies. You know, but, but you've still, been eaten by vegetarian piranhas. Right. Yeah, mean, but you're on. used to doing a show, and and not only that, but Larry, Larry does the show with a vengeance, to where you don't practice anything. He said, when we do camera blocking, I just want you to do blah blah blah. I don't want you to say anything that you're going to say. Just wait till the cameras roll and then say whatever you're going to say, and then we'll see what it is. So you rehearse your scene. Only Larry kind of knows the overall arc of the entire Curb Your Enthusiasm show. You, you're given one sentence. Okay. One sentence of who your character is, and you come out, and they say, action, and you start talking. And afterwards, in, in our case, it was Larry Charles came up and said, Stephen, Stephen, okay, why don't you keep this part, get rid of the rest, and add something else here, and maybe add something like this. Then you go back and you shoot it again, and you, keep, you build it like Tinker Toys. And after about an hour, you are having more fun. And you thought, why can't acting be this much fun all the time? It was just great fun doing that. And... I'm surprised that they don't do that more often. I, I love that. I love Seinfeld. I love I love Kirby Enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. I just because I'm one of the people that you know. People like some people are like, oh, he's such a jerk. I'm like, no, I, he's not. Like when he's bitching about the lady getting all the ice cream samples. Yes. You know. You know what? That's rude. I do that when I go shopping. <laughs> no, not that. I go shopping and I go to Ralph's. And I live in Burbank. There's a nice Ralph's and what we call the ghetto Ralph's. And they said, why do you call it the ghetto Ralph's? I said, because when you walk in, the floor, it's just, it looks disgusting. You know, like the, the produce, you know, it's just not. And I have a problem when it says 15 and under. It's okay if you have like 18. Okay, but I have to see people with like 40 items. And I said, <laughs> I said to the lady, I said to the manager, I said, why do you have that? Well, we wanted to get, you know, you can go use a self-checkout because you've also, I don't want to do the self-checkout. You know, because you sit there and if you buy produce, you have to go through and like yeah, find, you have a to find of the picture of the apple code. and all yeah. that. And, and that's then I'm someone who will say something like you know, and that's what I love about Larry David because he says, I mean, he takes it a little further than I would. Yes, but it's just great. I mean, that's why I love that show. Oh yeah, and and th- no, you were in the Larry David moment. 
Okay. Yeah, when the person has the 40, 40 items go. and the 15 or less, that's the Larry David moment when you say something. You know, I just couldn't help noticing well, no, I, I counting the items in your basket. See, I don't say it to him. I just go, <clears throat> 30 items. <laughs> like I have like Tourette's, like 45 <laughs> items. <laughs> and I don't say anything because it irritates the crap out of me. And it's, it's, it shouldn't. That's why I, I was saying earlier in the first show, I, I took a yoga class the other day and I'm doing, going back tomorrow. So, because I need to relax and meditate a little more you know i gotta get to you know so and i want to talk about deadwood you're in yes. Deadwood now now once again you you go from these yeah you know, that's what's great you have such a, a span of characters now deadwood's a western and yes. you know i mean i have friends who love it i didn't see it that much my friends rave about it and it was what was that like they were playing in a western then well it, deadwood was one of the great experiences really, of, of my life. I feel so lucky to have been a part of that show. And it is not for everyone. It is not a show that everyone's going to like. The language puts people off. Yet it, there is something mythic and grand and beautiful about it. Uh, one thing, the time and detail and thought that David Milch put into every show is crazy. Uh, the last show of season two, uh, we, we shot for 30 days. I have done movies in which you shoot uh, 21 days right. on the movie. So this is for one hour of television. There's so much detail put into it. Um, it was a crazy show. It was a crazy show. You get up at dawn every day pretty much. All of the camera operators, they like to shoot by natural light. And we would get up at dawn and rehearse with the director. And then you would show the scene for David Milch. And he would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of good, except uh, maybe we'll do it, and instead of you guys actually standing next to one another talking, we'll put one of you on one side of the street and one of you on the other, and maybe we'll have a stampede of cattle in, in, in between. And it will completely change the scene. I remember I was rehearsing one scene with Gerald McRaney, and David Milch came in and said, that's good, that's good, except maybe when we do it, why don't you try to do it as if you were a bird, just pretend like you have wings and flap and grow a beak. I'm go David, I don't get, just be a bird. And you would do these things and it would turn out to be kind of amazing. I had one, boy, I had so many remarkable stories from that show. One of them though was really out there. I was, uh, Powers Booth was a buddy of mine from college. He played one of the bad guys, Tolliver on that show. In one of the sweetest father-daughter kind of moments in Hollywood, Powers got his daughter, Paris, the job of the head prostitute okay. that worked for him. <laughs> now, David Milch asked me if I had ever been naked on a show, and I, I said, no. He says, would you mind having sex on this show? And I, I said, well, no, David, it's fine, because you don't really have sex on anything. Right. You know, they put me in a, you know, bathing suit, and I'm in a bathtub, but the girl they wanted me to have sex with was Powers' daughter, Paris. <laughs> now, what David Milch did not know was that back when Powers and I were in school together, I would go over to Powers and his wife Pam's house, and we'd have a few beers, and Paris was a baby then. Right. Paris was like just a few months old, and if, if Powers got uh, had a few too many beers, went to sleep on the pool table, I would sit there talking with Pam, and we'd talk about stained glass window and horseback riding, and I would help her diaper Paris. So here I am, through a chance of fate. That you, I mean, what are the odds of this? That in my life, I was having pseudo-sex in a bathtub 
with a girl that in earlier years I had actually diapered. Right. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Only in Hollywood does that happen. It's crazy. The, o- the only other time that anything weird like that happened was when I was a student, my favorite actor in the world was James Earl Jones. He did Of Mice and Men at our school, SMU, and then he took it to Broadway. And I thought, boy, if I could only be in a movie with James Earl Jones, and I was. I was in a movie in Thailand with James Earl Jones. I didn't have any scenes with him, and I didn't actually meet him because in Thailand there was a great deal of prejudice against blacks. And so James Earl Jones stayed in his hotel room most of the time. But one afternoon, we had no real trailers, no place to hang out. We were on a deserted Thai military base. They had a 747 park there, and they put out metal folding chairs under the 747 to shade me and James Earl Jones. Wow. And I said, what are the odds that the guy who was your idol uh, as a child that made you want to become an actor was the work of James Earl Jones? You get to sit under the belly of a 747 in Thailand on a deserted military base and actually sit next to it. It's crazy. Crazy. You know, we have like uh, seven minutes left. I want to okay. talk about I want to talk about California Cation. Okay, you got it. Because uh, I love that show. And yep. your, your character's so great in that. It's just, it's so, what I love about this show is, I mean, Duchovny's such a dick, but you still like him. Like, love his character him. is just such an idiot. I mean, you look at him and you go, okay, he's a cheater, he's a drunk, he is a but you sit there and you still just like the guy. Your character is just this nice guy with a huge cock. I mean, that's a, <laughs> I mean you're a rich guy, and that's what's so funny about it, because it's just, and like you and Marcy, because you're so, because she's little, little, I mean, she's little like girl. five foot in real life, if yeah. that. Yeah. And so, how did that role come apart, uh, uh, come up? That was... That was really, oh man, that's another big story. But but I uh, I ended up getting the part uh, when you when you get to be my age, when you get to be in your fifties and sixties now, and you audition, you see all the guys in your life you have ever known that you're auditioning against. Everybody you know, you know everybody there, and you have a personal story with everybody in that room. I was lucky that I got the part of Stu. There were so many good people there. And I was reading the script, and I was thinking, what if, what if we've seen the producer, and we've seen the producer with the big cock, and we've seen the producer with all the money and the cars and the girls before, what if, in this case, it is a love story? What if we have all of that, but this, Stu sees this as his last chance of really being in love, falling in love with Marcy? And... Pam introduced herself to me first day, read through, saying, well, I guess we're probably going to be knocking knees on this show, you know, <laughs> probably knocking knees pretty soon. And I said, maybe, and I talked to her about it, and she says, Tubbo, I love this idea. I love this idea. And we talked to Tom, who is the uh, writer-producer of the show. He loved the idea, and the whole thing kind of spun out from there in that the story of Stu and Marcy and Runkle is a real love story. And I want to get to the David Duchovny thing. This is why David is so lovable, besides the fact that David is lovable. The thing about Californication that's different from almost every other show on television, every other show on television pretends that uh, it has morals and there's cracks kind of maybe at the top of of when people act inappropriately. Not Californication. Californication, everybody is acting completely inappropriately on the surface, but underneath, 
underneath their hearts are gold. Hey, well, he's such a great dad. You and know, it's the, you see that. That's what redeems him, you know, and it's just that's what's great. To, to go to the old Talmudic thing, to, you know, that, that we are made up of warring natures, the etzahara, the, the evil nature, and the erzatov, the good nature. And in Californication, the thing that you get in that show is everybody, every one of those characters on that show is fighting to be good good and that's the difference is is that we respond to david's character and to natasha's character and pam and and you know runkle and my character evan you know we we respond to all the characters and we see what they're fighting for and they want to be in love they want to be good parents they want to do the right thing they just don't right (laughs) they just don't they're like us which is why i mean i don't think i've ever had so much fun on a show as californication it is, again, not for everybody, right. not for everybody, but I got to tell you, it is quite a treat. Well, it's funny because I've watched that, but I watched, started in the, I didn't watch, I watched the first season a little bit, and that's what I love about On Demand. Then I watched the whole season, and then I got the second On Demand, and I just really got into it. So now it's just, it's, it's grown, it's grown, it's just, it's, and it's the music choices are great, and it's just a really cool show. And this season, this is the last season, a seventh season and it starts, I think, in a week or two. Yeah, it starts very soon. Yes, very soon. It is hilarious and 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 very touching. And and people who are fans of the show, you will not be disappointed at how the show ends because I think it is a very righteous ending. So, so what else do you have coming up? Well, boy, uh, some, some I'm, I'm writing now. I'm okay. writing a lot. So I wrote a book, Dangerous Animals Club, and it came out last year, Simon & Schuster. So I've been doing book tour. I've been doing stories. Uh, this coming week, I'm going to be uh, in Woodstock, New York. I'm going to headline the Writers uh, Festival there, and then I'm coming back and do LA Times Festival of Books. Then I'm going to Austin, Texas, the Paramount Theater, and do stories. I just came from New Zealand. I did stories in Auckland. I have a new book of Simon & Schuster that's due in December. It'll probably be out next year. And uh, so I've been doing all the bookstore uh, tour stuff, and TV-wise, big, big news. Um, I'm going to be doing a Ben Stiller's new show on Comedy Central, big time in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, Alex Anfanger is the star of that show. And if you don't know Alex's work, go on the Internet and look up Next Time on Lonnie, and you will laugh yourself sick. This guy is so funny. This was one of—this could rival Californication as the most fun I've ever had in a show, it is so, so funny. So big time in Hollywood, Florida, we start shooting, I guess at the end of May, beginning of June for this season. So I'm going to be doing that show and very much looking forward to working with Alex again. Just just wonderful. That's good. You got a lot of diversity going on there. A lot of diversity. Got to be diverse. You gotta in be, this I, you you know, gotta. I'm, I'm working on a cookbook, believe it or not. There, uh, I believe a, it. A healthy cookbook because I have congestive heart failure, so it's a healthy cookbook. Me for too. One. We could talk it's, sometime it's, about my it, yeah, it's triple called, bypass. It's, it's called Stop the Assault and the A and the U, so it's Stop the Assault. And I got a title from Ed Krasnick. I don't know if you know Ed. He's a comic, and it's 125 easy-to-make recipes that have no salt. And I'm finishing it right now. I was at my cardiologist yesterday, and he's actually going to write my uh, my uh, intro, uh, the forward, if he thinks the book's okay, because I can't put my name on crap. That's my <laughs> that's my, my cardiologist is great. But uh, you, you tweet a lot. 
I, I tweet. Okay. I do tweet. I'm at Tobolowski at Twitter.com. Spell that. Spell that for these people. That's T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, not I, but Y. And I'm also on Facebook, uh, Stephen Tobolowski on Facebook.com. And uh, you can also look up my stories that, that are in my book and also on the radio and on the Internet on the TobolowskiFiles.com. They're on iTunes. They're all over the place. And uh, right now, they're all over the world. So check Good. that out, and you'll enjoy it. And they're free. Good. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure Pleasure, here. sir. And uh, people, follow me at Twitter, at CooperTalk. Also, uh, go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have 240 episodes up there. Uh, also, if you go to your, iPhone, uh, your, your Google phone, your Android, Google Play Store, the Cooper Talk app. It's free. You can find all my shows, iTunes, Stitcher, Cooper Talk, one word. Also, uh, email me, cooper at Indy 100. And don't forget, every Tuesday night in Burbank at Jimmy's Place, it's a little bar on San Fernando between Grismer and Amherst, a little out of the way, I host crappy comedy. I bring some of my good uh, comedian friends in, and we just have fun. It's a little dive bar, and it's just, there's no no attitude, just people hanging out. You know, every once in a while we get some people drop in. So yeah, do that. And please email me. Follow me at Twitter. I try to make you laugh when I can. Uh, and just that's all I'm going to say. So I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Remember, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.